Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome to another broadcast. This version of Modern History of Muskoka comes to you from Hunters Bay Radio here in Huntsville and on the station's website with text and photographs. But there's a book version of my modern history too. And this week I launched another title in the series. It's called Putting Muskoka on the Map from Indigenous Wayfinding to Satellite Imaging. I should tell you the official launch at Gravenhurst Public Library Wednesday evening showed deep interest in this colorful saga. From Samuel Champlain's first map in 1615 to recent satellite images from space, our district's exploration and mapping was neither quick nor easy. This new 300-page book with 40 maps and 100 pictures presents a parade of human endurance and ingenuity, the indispensable role of First Nations, the dogged actions of military planners, treachery and betrayal, the aspirations of land developers, the evolving but essential relationship between First Nations and settlers, star Canadian mapmaker David Thompson's unique Muskoka role, and the solving of the mystery of why his invaluable maps of Muskoka appeared to have been lost just when they were needed most for orderly land settlement and the benefit of homesteaders. Putting Muskoka on the map is a comprehensive story integrating global forces with local realities, including the tribulations of, of land surveyors trying to subdivide raw Canadian shield landscape into a neat grid, obstacles faced, facing road builders on the same terrain, conflicting government land policies, and how the shift from logging and homesteading to a vacation economy, put Muskoka on the continent's social map. And that's what this program is about. Not Muskoka's geographic map, but North America's social map. Charles Orlando Shaw of Huntsville was not an explorer or map maker, but when he opened the doors of Big One Inn on Lake O'Bays in June 1920, Shaw made all those maps showing people how to reach Muskoka indispensable. People wanted to get here from everywhere. 
let's first uh, put this extraordinary resort in its Muskoka context. No two lakes in our district are the same, and neither are any two resorts on those lakes. But generally speaking, there were two business models for developing a summer hotel in Muskoka. The first was essentially organic. The second, primarily corporate. The first came into existence when homesteaders began converting their log shanties into accommodation for hunting and fishing parties, the original sportsman's lodges, which the owner operators gradually expanded and renovated as their hinterland standards meshed with the metropolitan expectations of wealthy guests. The second type were created by business interests as purpose-built high-end resort facilities to push high-class vacationing, with examples like the Royal Muskoka on Lake Russell, a deluxe venture by Muskoka Steamships Company and the Grand Trunk Railway, and the Guava Hotel on Lake Abays, largely funded by the Railway News Company. Big one in was the quintessential version of this second model. And indeed, it became the gold standard for Muskoka summer resorts through the mid 20th century. Lavish fanfare accompanied Big One Inn's long awaited opening in 1920. The delays had been caused by a world war, producing shortages of building material and workers followed in 1918 and 1919 by the Spanish flu pandemic that took the lives of workers on the project, including the lead stonemason. Exceptional in size, design, style, and culture, this new Lake of Bays Resort Hotel was the British Empire's largest, accommodating over 500 guests. Top chefs, modern kitchens, and extensive staff, <laughs> including an exclusive waitress at each table, could simultaneously serve meals to 750 diners in the fabulous Indian Head dining room, an immense high-vaulted 12-sided hall with crisp white linen tablecloths and chinaware embossed with the resort's indigenous loco on all the matching tables. Elegance on a grand scale. Big One Farm in Huntsville sent garden fresh vegetables, fruit, and dairy products daily aboard Shaw's steamships, which also picked up clean linen and towels laundered in town. This resort was an extensive community-wide North Muskoka operation. Passengers arriving in comfort by steam train from across the continent moved in stately fashion through Huntsville as a swing bridge let their steamer pass. The canal dredged in 1887 between Ferry and Peninsula Lakes 
enabled the large vessel to carry them through appealing fresh scenery. A waiting steam train at North Portage gave them a unique adventure as the smallest commercially operated railway in the world climbed 103 feet over less than a mile to South Portage and the higher Lake of Bays. Here, another steamship, usually the Iroquois or Mohawk Bell, continued the final leg of their journey to Bigwin Island. The resort's spectacular structures came into view, grander and more extravagant than anything seen before in Muskoka. The enthralled guests then landed to well-orchestrated welcomes. Their trunks were discreetly moved by uniformed staff to their allotted spacious and well-appointed rooms in the East Lodge, West Lodge, or one of the freestanding stone cottages. Peace and privacy awaited in these rooms because guests' quarters were separate from the rotunda, dancing pavilion, and dining room, all of which could be nevertheless reached by charmingly roofed pathways. Within two decades, here's what steamboat captain and historian Levy Fraser said in the 1940s. Big one in lends prestige to our district because it enjoys a continent-wide reputation as the largest and most attractive summer resort in America. Captain Fraser knew firsthand about Big One Inn's North American renown. He ferried thousands of notables across Lake of Bays to this summer paradise on an island. Because Big One Inn surpassed all expectations in high fashion, patrons of Shaw's record-setting resort flocked north from his own native land, the United States. In 1942, for example, Lieutenant Perry Dieters and his wife arrived from Los Angeles, their first time in Canada. They'd never heard about Muskoka or its famous resort until a Chicago friend tipped them off. They were so surprised and impressed by lavish big one in that upon leaving the Dieters declared their first visit would not be their last. And it wasn't. It would seem, concluded Fraser, that Muskoka needs a more intensive and enthusiastic program or system for advertising its wares to let more of the world know that this district ranks first among vacation centers in America. The captain went on to list what made life in Muskoka enjoyable. Sunshine, pure air, cool nights, pure spring water in abundance, plenty of choice food, beds on which a king or queen could relax to their heart's content. One's choice of sports, he added, included golf, tennis, bathing, swimming, sailing, canoeing, fishing, or hiking, uh, the invigorations of a most leisurely vacation. 
Charles Shaw implemented Captain Fraser's recommendation for more intensive advertising. Promotional films shot at Bigwin were shown in American movie theaters with flyers and newspaper ads in those cities drawing attention to them the same way Hollywood promoted new movies. By mid-century, two-thirds of Bigwin's guests came from the United States. And if Americans liked it, Canadians did too. The on-island experience was so exceptional that, as Captain Fraser also observed, guests have fallen into the habit of coming back year after year. He named many of the era's tycoons and celebrities as examples, some having shown up 23 consecutive seasons. <laughs> and these were not for weekends, but seasons, weeks, and months. By the same token, Shaw's loyal and long-serving staff infused Bigwin in with familiar stability. The rich and famous were comfortably at home on their island oasis. Wanting to return the coming season, they knew to book well ahead. Let's us book ahead for after a brief station break to see four more dimensions of Bigwin Inn that put it in a class of its own. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. So let's now look at four more ways Charles Orlando Shaw's Big One Inn Summer Resort stood apart from all the others. Many Muskoka resorts and dance halls had won renown by booking North America's top musical entertainers, and some had house bands. Big One Inn was the only one with its own performance orchestra, the Anglo-Canadian Band of Huntsville. Shaw happily and unstintingly fostered formation of the Anglo-Canadian Concert Band from talented musicians at his Huntsville tannery, poor immigrants from Italy with familiar but battered instruments and loads of talent. He bought them swank uniforms, and expensive new instruments. An accomplished musician himself, he played first coronet. Shaw then imported more top talent, including lead clarinetist E.A. Clarinetist Wald Sr. from Chicago. He even landed preeminent American band leader Herbert L. Clark with a five-year $75,000 contract. That's $2,850,000 in today's values. Besides conducting, renowned composer Clark wrote many pieces while living in Huntsville, including Lake of Bays, Twilight Dreams, 
Lavinia, the name of Shaw's wife in her honor, and Helen for Shaw's granddaughter. Clark's lively march, entitled simply Big One, played during the band's acclaimed performance at 1919's CNE Grandstand show in Toronto, was part of the resort's pre-launch publicity. Huntsville's Anglo-Canadian band became internationally renowned, thanks to radio broadcasts across Canada and as far south as Miami. It was really just another way that Shaw was putting Muskoka on the social and cultural map of the continent. To everyone's delight, but nobody's surprise, the next year, 1920, music by the Anglo-Canadian concert band was drifting across Lake of Bays from Big One Inn. A flotilla of cottager canoes and motorboats floated offshore to enjoy it. In addition to music, Shaw prominently featured the First Nations at Big Win Island, Big Win Inn's uh, fulsome embrace of Indigenous realities uh, began with Shaw's using uh, for the resort's name, Chippewa Chief John Bigwin's name, to honor this chief whose traditional Muskoka lands these were, and a man and Indigenous leader whom Shaw befriended. This emphasis included Indigenous motifs worked into the resort's woodwork, as well as in poured concrete designs. Big One Inn's wigwam, canoe, and island logo appeared on the daily printed activities newsletter for guests, on place settings, and on stationery. Meanwhile, high-end cultural activities featured live performances by internationally celebrated First Nation bass, bass baritone singer, Oski Nonton. I mentioned before the break that Big One Inn incorporated extensive stonework. Mention of stone is already exceptional for Muskoka resorts because virtually all were built of wood. It was plentiful, served well enough for summer-only buildings, was inexpensive in lumber-rich Muskoka district, and made for quick and easy construction. Not only did C.O. Shaw have plenty of stonework on his Bigwin Island complex, but all the major buildings were poured concrete. That cost far more and took exceptional effort transporting volumes of cement powder and tons of mainland gravel. But they were, unlike many fire trap Muskoka resorts, virtually fireproof. Human safety scored high in Shaw's priorities. He'd earlier rebuilt both his leather tanneries at Huntsville and Bracebridge of concrete as well. Shaw, who'd do anything to prevent fire, had also implemented his idea to have many separate buildings for his resort, not a single big one. 
and that was a full decade before a coroner, coroner recommended doing so following the disastrous fire at the Allwood single-structure Wawa Hotel that killed a dozen people as it burned to the ground in less than half an hour. And though C.O. Shaw didn't play golf, he sure liked how the fairways of Big One's 18-old course, in addition to satisfying guests, served as fire breaks on the heavily wooded island. Finally, Big One Inn opened just as Prohibition of the 1920s came in. But it was a dry hotel anyway, because Charles Shaw's prior experience with men staggering to work from the saloon of a large tannery he ran in Michigan made him an ardent prohibitionist. However, in keeping with the pattern of flaunting prohibition, both in Canada and the U.S. during the Roaring Twenties, Big One guests brought clandestine supplies of booze in their luggage, and bellboys made fortunes in tips, discreetly bringing ice and mix to their securely private rooms. At Big One Inn, one way or another, everything worked to perfection. Big One Inn deserved its stellar reputation. It was no run-of-the-mill addition to Muskoka's existing array of holiday accommodations. The only other resort in its league was the Royal Muskoka on Lake Rosso, a magnet to plutocrats for two decades before Shaw's gem appeared on the Lake of Bays. Both well-publicized resorts catapulted the Muskoka vacation experience already famous as early as the 1880s, into the stratosphere. I'll wind up by letting you know that this saga of Big One Inn will be in the next book in my Modern History of Muskoka series, entitled Muskokans Embrace the Roaring Twenties. It will be completed this year after I finish a speaking tour around Muskoka and beyond about what amazing efforts it took over hundreds of years putting Muskoka on the map. Thank you for listening. Our producer for this program here at Hunters Bay Radio is Jacob Snow Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer.